You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into the Republic Broadcasting Network for this Wednesday night edition of the broadcast. And thank you all for tuning in once again. As anyone who's been watching or listening this week knows, this is BoilingFrogsPost.com week, as we prepare for the release of a new Boiling Frogs Post DVD that is unfortunately taking a little longer to construct than we had anticipated, given some technical difficulties behind the scenes getting the disc together. But it is coming, it will be available soon, and it is a great way to not only support the work that's going on at Boiling Frogs Post, but also also to uh, to help spread the word and information because it makes I think a valuable tool for helping to spread some of the ideas that we're talking about here on a regular basis on the Corbett Report. And on that note, of course, this week we've been featuring some of the uh, the contributors to Boiling Frogs Post. Last night we were talking to Peter B. Collins. Tomorrow night we're talking to Eric Dreitzer. Friday night we will be talking to Sibel Edmonds herself. But tonight we're honored to be joined on the line once again from Canada by our old friend and uh, frequent guest here on the program, Andrew Gavin Marshall. Of course, his main flagship website is andrewgavinmarshall.com. He's also at the peoplesbookproject.com. And of course, he's also a contributor to Boiling Frogs Post with his regular Empire, Power, and People podcast, which I hope you are checking out. If you uh, if you haven't done so in the past, I hope you will check it out starting today. Why wait? So uh, let's bring him right up into the conversation. Andrew Gavin Marshall, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be on. Well, it has been a couple of months, I think, since you've been on the program, so perhaps you can just update us as to uh, what you're working on these days. Uh, well, I was at a bit of an impasse on the book project, but it's picking up again and trying to get the first volume of the book project uh, finished and ready at least for uh, an edit, let alone publication, but uh, trying to push through that now, so just kind of organizing all that to have a lot of research to sift through in order to do that, but uh, uh, I just hope it's going to be finished relatively soon. I am the last person on earth to ask such a question, but do you have an ETA on the potential uh, publication of, of that? Uh, let's say for the new year. That keeps it rather uh, open. <laughs> well, I've only been announcing the uh, publication of my book since, I believe, uh, December of 2009, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm only a few years behind. All right, yeah. well, obviously a ton of work going into that. And once again, let's remind people of the scope of this project. What kinds of things are you covering in this People's Book Project? Uh, well, uh, broadly speaking, the focus is on ideas, institutions, and individuals of both power and resistance, so domination, revolution, uh, but historically covering social, political, economic, cultural, scientific, technological, uh, psychological aspects and institutions and ideas. So it's quite expansive um, and uh, really just a focus on the concept of the institution itself and the role of ideas in building and strengthening and uh, projecting institutions and the role that individuals play both within institutional structures and in creating them and in reacting to them. Uh, so it kind of goes across uh, broadly across society and uh, fairly uh, far back in history, but trying to uh, mostly focus on the 20th century, but loosely going from 
about 500 years ago. <laughs> so, so just a tiny project overall, really. No. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> and you could do it over a weekend. Absolutely. No, for anyone, of course, who hasn't checked out your writing, I don't think they'd understand really the scope and depth of the analysis that you do. And I do appreciate all of the, uh, the historical uh, points that you bring to the table and, and just a lot of research that goes into this. So again, it is uh, a huge, overwhelming project. And I can only imagine the type of hours and work that you put into this. And for people who don't know, of course, this is available at, or what's uh, available so far is available at thepeoplesbookproject.com. It's being uh, published there in, in drips and drabs, but of course it's with an eye towards publication in actual book form. Hopefully in the new year. Well, I'm looking forward to that. All right, let's take our first break, but when we come back, we'll continue chatting with Andrew Gavin Marshall. Once again, his main website, andrewgavinmarshall.com. We'll be back after this. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio, and you are tuned into Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, we're talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of AndrewGavinMarshall.com. Of course, he's also available on many other websites that publish his work, including, of course, BoilingFrogsPost.com, where he hosts the Empire, Power, and People podcast, which comes out on a weekly basis. Episode 42 has just recently been published, uh, the TPP, Obama's Transnational Corporate Tyranny, and it is so hot off the press that I myself haven't even had a chance to, uh, to uh, listen to it yet, so... Uh, I, I have some uh, listening cut out for me, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. But I did listen to episode 41 of the Empire Power and People podcast, uh, Empire Economics and Dynastic Power, talking on a, on a wide range of issues, actually. It was quite a wide-ranging discussion, and I found it particularly interesting in a number of respects. And one of the things that I found interesting was that to a certain extent, at any rate, you kind of addressed the idea of... The, the power structure and who's at the top of that power structure and how it operates. This is, of course, something that uh, is very much uh, a point of analysis for a lot of the alternative media, but it's questionable how much deep analysis goes into this question and how much of it is just something that, that kind of people learn by rote in a way. They, they don't set, tend to question some of these concepts. So, for example... All central banks everywhere in the world are just controlled by the, Rock or the Rockefellers or the Rothschilds, and full stop, and, and uh, quote. I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of analysis of how that functions or, or how these, these power structures come to be. And that, that was a part of that, that podcast that I found to be particularly interesting. In some ways, I completely agree with what you were saying. In other ways, I was infuriatingly opposed to what you were saying. But, but at any rate, it did touch off a lot of thoughts in my own head. So let's just go over a, a little bit about what you were saying in that podcast and some of the points that you made. Sure. Um, well, talking about dynastic power in general is uh, difficult to do in a modern setting, especially in a Western so-called democratic society. Uh, the concept, I mean, first of all, of dynastic power of families ruling oligarchies. I mean, almost every human civilization in history has been ruled by dynasties. The concept that we are somehow an exception to history today uh, is, I think, naive. Um, however, dynastic power shifted from, say, monarchical uh, power structures, who are still somewhat relevant, uh, to uh, financial dynasties, corporate dynasties. Uh, in the United States, we saw, have seen and witnessed the rise and fall of many families, and, you know, you saw the Morgans and the Rockefellers and the Harrimans, uh, the Vanderbilts and 
Uh, ultimately, today, I would argue that the Rockefellers are the most influential in the United States, if not much of the Western world itself. Uh, in Europe, we saw the rise of the uh, Rothschild banking dynasty, also among several other dynasties. If you look closely at any uh, major European country, you'll see individual family dynasties uh, sort of holding the greatest influence uh, among the economic and political class. And of course, because we're in a world of globalization and internationalization, uh, these dynastic powers are themselves very much integrated uh, with each other. Uh, one of the main points I was making, however, was uh, disseminating between the idea of understanding dynastic power as it exists or as it likely exists and uh, sort of conspiratorial um, uh, sort of, I guess, a more linear perspective in that uh, kind of just uh, associating all um, all power to these dynasties uh, and sort of saying that everything that happens is the result of these people or uh, these families and that they're in control of everything and everyone. Um, if you look at the records that exist with these families, because there are records, I mean, they're not looked into very often, but they exist and they're there in the public record. Uh, if you review them, I mean, there's a great amount of uh, information to understanding how influence works. For example, you look at the 70s with uh, David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger and the coup in Chile. You know, David Rockefeller was able to influence policy to support a coup in Chile, and he did this largely through Henry Kissinger. Uh, but if you look at how the power was wielded, it's not like Rockefeller picked up the phone and told Nixon, this is what you're going to do. He had to influence kind of through the back door, you know, setting up meetings with other executives and uh, introducing people to Kissinger who would introduce people to the CIA director who would introduce people to President Nixon. So you have to, the influence is uh, not unseen, but subtle. And it's not always successful either. Uh, and that's another thing that we have to understand is that these uh, dynasties are not simply uh, puppet masters, but they also have to react to changes from the bottom. Uh, I think it's best to think of it almost like a mafia, where you have several families um, all sitting at a table meeting at their mafia annual general meeting. Uh, and, you know, once in a while, they'll kill each other off, take over each other's racket. Uh, but ultimately, they're all there to protect the family and the game. And you don't, there's understood rules where you don't go to the police unless, of course, you're paying them off. Uh, but uh, you all pack the game even though there's infighting, and I think that's the best way to understand uh, dynastic power in the world today. It functions like a mafia family, but also you could just understand international relations like a mafia system, um, and that they, of course, interact and uh, uh, sort of um, intersect. Uh, in in that sense, but uh, you mentioned the concept of uh, there's a citation, if you can call it that, um, that I've seen several times where it says that, that you know the Rothschilds own every central bank in the world except for, for the, the bank in Venezuela and Iran or Libya, um, and that therefore this is why these countries are being bombed uh, or possibly bombed. Um, First of all, that citation doesn't exist. There's nowhere that I can see where that information comes from that's at least legitimate. Just because it's repeated uh, doesn't make it legitimate. Would it surprise me if it were true? No. But that doesn't mean that it is true. 
Um, and there is, uh, I think, an important element to not giving these people uh, too much credit for things that we can't prove, because we also have to understand uh, their weaknesses, and they exist because they are people as well. They certainly are people, and I think you're right. I think that there's the tendency that sometimes we have to try to assign complete uh, control and power to these these family lines, and in a way that that actually, I think, plays into what I think these people would like. They would like to believe they are omnipotent gods that can do whatever they want and have people cower at their, their power. And I think you're exactly right. When we play into that and assign everything that happens in the world to their uh, basically omnipotent ability to throw their weight around and do whatever they want, that actually just plays into their hands rather than than uh, than the the system that we want. I think a lot of the system functions on giving us false templates, so that when we think about, for example, even monarchical power, which is supposedly what we look back to in generations past, that was the absolute power held by one family line. But even in that system, of course, it wasn't the monarch generally that that held all the power. It was the advisors. It was the court. It was the various people who had influence over that uh, that monarchical power. And uh, I th- so I think we give we're given false templates to believe about the way that power functions, so that power can continue to function in the way that it does. Which, as you say, is more like a collaboration where people get together, people of like interests, and uh, they collaborate on those points on which they come together. And if we have that different understanding, perhaps a more nuanced understanding of how the power functions in our society, does that change our ability to fight back against that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the worst it could do is provide a better understanding of the world, which is, you know, not to be uh, looked at lightly. Uh, I mean, so long as, you, like you mentioned, assigning them sort of omnipotent power, uh, I mean, elites have always... <laughs> throughout history claimed some sort of omnipotent power. You mentioned monarchies. Well, their claim was that they were put on the throne by God. You know, so it's like you can't really say that you're any more omnipotent than that. But as you mentioned, they would have to vie for power with others. They would have to struggle against the church. They would have to struggle against other rising aristocracies and, and uh, finance and uh, all sorts of different systems of power that were existing and changing. And, of course, their advisors, because let's not forget that most dynastic power structures are made up of, well, inbred people. And they tend to lend themselves to being uh, influenced by uh, others who are welcomed into their circles. But you look at ancient Rome, and of course that was a dynastic imperial ruling family. Uh, and if you look at the history of these uh, families, it's you know it's Shakespearean, and uh, you know they're always killing each other off, or sleeping with each other, and then killing each other off. And it's these sort of wild, uh, melodramatic stories, which are really interesting uh, in a historical perspective. But at the time, what people knew uh, about what was actually taking place in these households was very little. You know, you had rumoring conjecture, but the commoners were essentially just left to think that these were, you know, that was your emperor and you worship him and that's the end of the story. Um, but we now know from posterity that there's a lot more to the story and the internal politics, even within these families, is very tumultuous to say the least. So to simply assign today the concept that, uh, you know, one family will be ruling consistently. You know, you often hear things like uh, the Rockefellers are just pawns for the Rothschilds. Well, 
I mean, they work together, and that's what I can see in the facts. And, you know, we just saw recently in the Financial Times reporting that uh, Rothschild's investments had purchased a huge stake in sort of Rockefeller investment uh, portfolio, which is a sign. And David Rockefeller even said that our families have been working together for decades, and uh, this is just a closer coordination. Um, so yeah, I mean that's what I see the evidence for. They work together; they're very close. I don't see any reason to believe that one is technically superior over the other. Uh, you can certainly see that the Rothschilds superior the Americans, and the Rothschilds are superior in Europe. That's fairly understandable. Right, sort of zones of responsibility, perhaps. Well, again, a lot of different ways to interpret that, but we're coming up against our next break. If you want to get in on tonight's conversation, one eight hundred three one three nine four four three. We'll be back right after this. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Once again, we are talking tonight to Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com, also a contributor to boilingfrogspost.com. And we're having a discussion on, well, a lot of different subjects tonight, but of course one that uh, Andrew often talks about is empire and dynastic power, how it functions in our society, and hopefully, eventually, what we can do about it, which is where this conversation is heading. But uh, on that note, we do have one caller on the line. Once again, if you'd like to get in on this conversation, one 800 313 But let's go to Travis in Tennessee. Travis, thank you for calling in tonight. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Well, um, yeah, this is a wonderful conversation. I think ultimately um, what it comes down to is how can you um, supersede this uh, dynastic uh, power uh, system that has been set up and, you know, has, of course, been operating for a very long time. Um, how is that, can that be superseded or just made obsolete to where, you know, people feel, I think, even subconsciously or consciously that they have to rely on the system and have to rely on, uh, the infrastructure, et cetera, whatever it may be, um, you know, like they want to be controlled to some extent. But how do you make it to where, um, how do we, each of us, I guess, uniquely make it to where we don't have to rely on the system or that it's just completely obsolete? Excellent so question. Really Excellent question. In fact, that was exactly what I was going to be asking, Andrew, because I think you're right. I think it has to be more about making it obsolete rather than trying to fight against it or, or something along those lines. But Andrew, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, I think that's uh, actually a really good point. And uh, I should just add that in discussing dynastic power, I don't see that as the cause of uh, the problems. I see that as a major symptom of the problems. When we go to the causes, because again, you know, if just mentioning, for example, you know, the r- reference of Rothschilds controlling all the central banks. Well, central banking existed before the Rothschilds did. You know, so it existed and this institution and the ideas within this institution and how it functions in society and how it organizes and exercises power allowed a dynasty like the Rothschilds to rise up within it and others as well. I mean, the names are ultimately kind of irrelevant. Uh, The fact is that you have these institutions of power, that they have ideological uh, basis uh, and that they exist. I mean, these these aren't uh, really real things, you know. Uh, uh, these are essentially all imaginary um, uh, ideas that we just give authority to. Uh, and the only way to uh, defeat them is to make them obsolete. Uh, as you mentioned, it's not about sort of 
uh, trying to get more representation in institutions that were never designed to represent you. Uh, so the point is to understand that it's the institution and the ideas, especially where power really is. And when we understand that, uh, the point of dynasty becomes, um, well, essentially it, itself obsolete because we can defeat that type of power uh, simply by um, building new ideas, creating new ideas. Uh, if we choose to create new institutions, we can do that. Um, but ultimately, you have to create a new society. Uh, so if the institution under question, for example, is education, higher education, you know, this is a hierarchical institution. It's made by and for power, and that's how it functions historically and presently. Uh, however, if we were to create a new educational system, one that, say, operates at community levels and grassroots levels, or just takes people and finding new ways to share and gain knowledge, then that makes the existing system of education obsolete and useless. And that's the way to defeat a type of institution like that. When it comes to things like banking or finance, uh, I mean, we have to ask questions of whether or not that's even necessary. Uh, when it comes to uh, military institutions. I mean, that's kind of a foregone conclusion that it just shouldn't exist at all. Um, and, you know, we can go on and go through each institution, political institutions and economic uh, institutions. I mean, just take the corporation as an institution. It's literally a totalitarian institution. Uh, and it obviously should not exist, uh, and most especially not exist as a legally uh, accepted human entity or person, I um, you know, so these are just ideas, uh, again, and the legal system is another great example. I mean, what does the legal system have to do with justice? Almost nothing. It's about legalizing injustice. So if we actually had ideas of justice, I mean, how many laws would you need to have a really just society? Not that many. I mean, there's very basic common sense uh, principles, which would be uh, the only real necessary laws. The reason no, we have. No, come on, Andrew. You need several hundred pages of, of small type in an, a tax code in order to make a, a society function. Everyone knows that. Uh, Travis, uh, any any other thoughts? Any other questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting. It, it seems like you know. I think, of course, you know, you got to understand the past and then be able to look forward. So it's like this consolidation. Um, continuously trying to monopolize uh, in every, you know, as uh, Andrew mentioned, uh, like every facet of the economy, of the society, of the, of the entire civilization, really is this tendency to be monopolized. Um, but really, you know, again, you know, how do you supersede that? Um, I think the, the system itself tries to fight against uh, competition, you know, always trying to monopolize uh, systems of power. Um I've thought about this for quite a quite a while now, like how to how to overcome it. This is kind of my season. I've got like four a four step process, perhaps, but it's unique to each individual. Um, every All right. Well, okay. Hold on, right there. there. We're coming up against yeah, yeah, the break, yeah. but uh, if you want to hold on, we'll we'll hear about that after the break. So once again, if you'd like to get in on tonight's conversation, one eight hundred three one three nine four four three, and we're talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall, andrewgavinmarshall.com, thepeoplesbookproject.com, and boilingfrogspost.com. We'll be back after these messages. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio, and tonight we are talking to our guest, 
Andrew Gavin Marshall, who, of course, is one of my colleagues there at BoilingFrogsPost.com. And once again, if you're just tuning in, we are featuring Boiling Frogs Post guests and subjects all this week as we prepare to release a new Boiling Frogs Post DVD that contains not only seven of my own eye-opener reports and not only an editorial cartoon video reel from Paul Jamial, who does excellent work there at Boiling Frogs Post as well, but it also contains an interview between myself and Andrew about his work there at Boiling Frogs Post and uh, some of the things that he's up to. So Andrew, also a part of this DVD that will be forthcoming, and once again, it's not available yet, but as soon as it is, don't worry, you guys will know about it. So... Uh, let's continue where we left off. We were talking to Travis in Tennessee. He's uh, t- t- outlining some of his ideas for what we can do to supersede the power structure and over overgrow the government instead of overthrow it, perhaps. But uh, but let's talk more about some of your ideas there, Travis. What have you got on the board? Great. Well, thanks again for, for letting me speak up. Yeah, uh, so basically, um, yeah, there's there's four things um, that, that I feel like, you know, would really help. Um, it's not necessarily a step process, but it's things that happen all the time. And if you think about your voluntary arrangements or your friends, things that you, you do every day, this, this happens a lot of times anyway, um, especially for black-minded uh, people like yourselves. But so uh, nullification. So, uh, you know, if you don't uh, agree with, with things that are, that are going on, you know, you can, we can look at, you know, money or food or education or health care. Um, just don't participate in it, you know, you know, um, and this goes right along with deceiving yourself from it, your participation, your participation, um, nullification is really the attempt to try to put it out of business. And we can look at anything that the government does. Um, I've looked at money a lot, but like, you know, using alternative currencies, um, like Shire Silver is a good example. They were, uh, formerly a Liberty dollar. Um, any of the hours systems, uh, let, uh, local exchange uh, trading systems, and of course digital currencies. But yeah, I mean you can go into anything: food, education, healthcare, um, and then superseding is just creating alternative um, means. And and this is like I said, using an alternative currency. You know, maybe you garden uh, for your food. Maybe you tutor children in in the area. You know, instead of having them participate in the public school system. Um, and then finally, emulation. Uh, which is basically learning from the successes of others and the, the failures of, of others. Um, I feel that um, just basically open source sharing of what works for you and, um, you know, just all these successes that happen in, in whatever uh, whatever niche uh, facet of the economy we're talking about here. But so nullification, cessation, uh, supersedence, and emulation is my, um, my four main points that I think each one of us uniquely can can you know use whatever we're passionate about and do these four things. Um, well, well, Travis, this might as well be Travis Report Radio because uh, that's exactly my my thinking on this, and uh, pretty much I couldn't dispute a single thing that you said there, uh, Andrew. What's your take on that? Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, and the examples were perfect, and they're already being done. You know, and that's why we don't hear about them because, like you said, they are good examples and you want to emulate good examples. So it's very important that people don't talk about the ones that are actually being done. For example, in Detroit, where a city so run down and economically destroyed, it may as well be a third world country. Um, 
Well, you see people in very rundown neighborhoods are organizing uh, gardens and growing their own food. They even have livestock uh, right in Detroit. And uh, it's very successful. It's organic, and it's getting entire communities involved and revived. Uh, and it's something that's really inspiring and really interesting. Uh, Al Jazeera did a documentary on this because, of course, you have to get – uh, this type of news from the Middle East because Lord knows you won't be getting it from the U.S. media. Um, and that's one of those just perfect examples. The caller mentioned food as one of those examples, which is incredibly important to take control of because you need it to survive. So it's very important to have alternative systems of growing food. And if you look at, for example, suburbia with all these houses and uh their fenced off lawns. Well, the fences are going to have to come down and people are going to have to start growing food, uh, in their gardens or replacing their lawns with actual, uh, gardens and growing their own food. This is just a matter of necessity and increasingly so. And there's tons of other examples, as the caller mentioned. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. And exactly right. If you take, if you are self-sufficient with food and you have alternative local currencies that can't be manipulated by, you know, central banks, then you've already removed two of the main leverages they have over you. So it's a huge step in, in terms of overthrowing the power structure rather than, than really uh, trying to, to argue or dispute with that power structure or engage with it. Just simply replace it. So, so Travis, I couldn't agree more. I thank you very much for your call. Hope you'll call in again in the future, but we have another caller on the line, so let's move over to Lark in Texas. Lark, thanks for calling in tonight. Well, hi, James. Hi, Gavin. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, great. You know, um, I must admit, I have been enamored uh, with the language that, uh, with the types of conversation that you're having right now for a very long time. I remember in uh, 1980 uh, attending, uh, or actually I catered a, an event for 2,500 people, and it, was, it featured Buckminster. I noticed in one of your comments, you reminded me of some of his famous book quotations. About, I'm sorry, you broke up a little uh, there, but I, I'm assuming you said Buckminster Fuller? I did. Okay. Yeah, and uh, but it wasn't till later that I realized that he was uh, really a rather an avowed socialist. That I began to look back and re-examine some of my own indoctrination to authoritarian constructs. And just recently, as an example, we started re-examining this thing called altruism. I noticed Gavin that. I'm sorry, again, you're breaking up. Are you on a cell phone? Lark, are you there? We lost him. We lost him. All right. Okay, Lark, sorry. If you're still out there, please call back in. We're interested in your comments there. Well, uh, of course, Lark does raise the the, the specter of uh, socialism, which is uh, certainly something that I am ideologically opposed to as someone who is more interested in anarcho-capitalism. But, uh, Andrew, I know your your sympathies lie more towards social movement and and struggles in terms of class consciousness. So what's your take on, on that issue in particular and how it might unite or divide the... Anarchic, anarchic tendency altogether. Uh, well, I like to think of myself as libertarian socialist, which is just another word for anarchist. Uh, if you look at true anarchism, uh, it's very similar to true socialism. 
for example, socialism as to be uh, considered separately from state socialism, which I am opposed to, uh, just like any other power structure, institutional power structure, I should say. Uh, socialism itself simply means workers controlling the means of production. Uh, in a sort of anarchist organization of, say, a factory, you have workers controlling the factory. Um, a socialist control of a factory is workers controlling the factory. Socialism is not the state controlling the means of production. That's state socialism uh, or just another brand of... Uh, not to quibble, but has there ever been any other kind? Of, of socialism? Has there ever been non-state socialism? Well, yes, but I mean, in the same examples that there's been uh, examples of uh, anarchism and uh, organizing factories. And I mean, you look at uh, Spain, for example, uh, up to the Civil War and the uh, fascists who destroyed all the progress that was made. But Spain had an anarchistic government, which was libertarian socialist, uh, largely. Um, and then, of course, you had... Um, sort of uh, socialist ways of organizing factories in Argentina, and even you've had worker-controlled factories all, and businesses all over the United States, uh, some of them quite successful. Uh, they exist all over the world, and you see this also developing in crisis countries in Europe right now, like in Greece, where you see workers taking control of hospitals and uh, even taking control of factories and other things and attempting to uh, keep them open and get them functioning. And... Uh, Generally speaking, I mean, there's failures and successes like in anything, but generally speaking, they're quite functional. And Spain was uh, far more advanced than any other country in terms of uh, anarchism. Um, and they uh, uh, had a quite um, amazing experiment that was taking place. So, of course, the fascists came to destroy it. Um, but uh, the example still exists in history. And you you, you use the term existence. anarchistic government. Uh, I am not sure I understand what that means. A paradox, by right? anarchistic uh, organization, I should say. Um, you know, like Barcelona, for example, was uh, run entirely through uh, uh, anarchistic organizations and uh, communities. Um, so it wasn't, of course, a government dictating and organizing, but it had uh, the, all the services and everything, and it was functioning quite well. Um, was all organized by these uh, sort of libertarian, socialist, anarchistic communities and uh, groupings of individuals. And it was quite successful. Um, you also saw the same thing that actually took place initially in the Russian Revolution, where you saw workers taking control of factories and many collectives being organized. And then the Bolsheviks came in and destroyed that. And then they called that... Uh, communism, when in fact they destroyed the actual communal organization that was taking place. Bolsheviks uh, funded by Wall Street with the, uh, the train of gold and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have Lark back on the line, so let's bring him back into this. Lark, it, it sounds like uh, these are going to be some points that you're going to dispute, so, so let's hear from your side of it. Well, and, and not out of any sort of meanness. Uh, I hope you can hear me better now. Yes, yes, you sound clear. Yeah, uh, Noam Chomsky is a noted uh, libertarian socialist, and I understand that tradition because, frankly, I uh, tended to gravitate towards those kinds of folks most of my life. I've often said that liberal was not a bad term, and and uh, uh, neither was a progressive. But uh, I must say, in my late fifties today, uh, I've had to re-examine some of these things in light of what I've studied over the last several years vis-a-vis -vis communitarianism. Uh, 
because it is a it is a pure variant of what we can term pure socialism. Uh, it does not eschew or disavow the corporatist model that this uh, country was founded upon, and yet it frankly embraces things like cultural Marxism as well as, uh, 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 frankly, collectivization. And this is really troubling to me, and I noticed that uh, the title of your project uh, is reminiscent of uh, Howard Zinn's book, uh, The People's History of the United States, or something to that effect. But I have to tell you that uh, the ideas that you espouse, uh, I wholeheartedly embrace. The only problem I would ever have is if anybody ever wanted to, to include me in their plans. And I think perhaps that's what you're saying in a sense, because uh, you you point uh, also to uh, uh, anarchy, which is I think is a healthful uh, development within those variant strains of what we classify uh, clumsily today as socialism. Uh, and then, frankly, just uh, make this this comment vis-a-vis the uh, I pointed out the name of the. Uh, the event for a nationwide touring exhibit that I catered in 1980 called Creativity, the Human Resource, of which Buckminster Fuller was the, uh, the, 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 the famous uh, speaker that was the head speaker of that uh, event. But what do you think about the fact that now the psychologists and the psychiatrists are claiming that creativity is rather a uh, mental illness? Yes, it, it, I think they're saying it, it often goes along with mental illness, but yes, exactly. Well, it does everything. <laughs> well, indeed. Andrew, your thoughts on, on what uh, Lark said there? Uh, well, should I comment on the last point on... Uh, uh, whatever you want to pick up there, or if you have any questions for Lark, or you want to dispute what he was saying there. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, it, it sounded good to me. I'm not exactly sure what was meant by... Uh, uh, advocating to include uh, him in this. I kind of got lost at that point. But uh, uh, the idea of, I think, collective organization, uh, there was a point made upon that, and I do think that collective organization is good because it's been proven to be effective. And it doesn't mean uh, collective thinking, which is what we have in our society today where people don't think and act as individuals. Uh, my understanding of uh, collective uh, organization is that you need the free thinking and acting individual in order for any collective organization to actually function and vice versa uh, for any collective organization to function effectively and efficiently. It needs to be composed of free-thinking individuals who are able to act and think uh, independently, uh, because these, I believe, are actually not opposed to one another, where I often see a lot of the um, discussion moving, either you're for individuality or you're for collective uh, collectivism. Um, I don't see those as diametrically opposed. I see them as mutually beneficial and necessary for one another to function properly. Um, you know, people uh, will be able to bring their own talents and their own ideas into collective organizations. And without collective organizations, uh, the individual talents and ideas 
uh, of these people will not be able to have an actual effect. Uh, you know, the idea that the product of uh, any one person's idea, you know, that sort of type of uh, Ayn Rand ideology of individualism, right, right. Um, where it's just you, it doesn't really function. I, I see where you're going with this, and I understand that that's the way that this debate often gets framed. But for me, it's not even a question of individualism versus collectivism or some sort of synthesis of the two. For me, it's all about just voluntary participation in an organization. As long as participation is voluntary and all interactions within that organization are voluntary, I have absolutely no dispute with any type of organization people want to come up with and, uh, and well, that doesn't uh, by its nature wouldn't subsume any individual's ability to have authority over their own life and to withdraw their participation from that system as long as that's on the table i'm happy with whatever people want to try you know try their yeah, absolutely agree with that and i mean the ideal would be to see so many different examples from uh libertarian socialism to what's called anarcho-capitalism or uh there's such a massive variation i mean you won't find any type of variation like you will in the vast uh domain of what's called anarchism uh there's so many different types and ideas and ways of organizing and acting and uh undertaking various uh, alternatives that I think the best would, to, would be to see all these differences and to see actually what works and what doesn't and to have this type of experiment and like you said, voluntarily Again, I, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think we have to put lots of ideas on the table and I think honestly the best ones will survive, but uh, but again uh, a lot to discuss. Lark, if you want to hold on the line, we'll uh, keep you over for the last segment. We will take one more break. We'll be back to finish things up. Andrew Gavin Marshall andrewgavinmarshall.com right after this. All right, friends, welcome back. We are here in the final moments of tonight's Corbett Report Radio. Once again, we've been talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall. The wide range of work that he does at andrewgavinmarshall.com, thepeoplesbookproject.com, and, of course, also at boilingfrogspost.com cannot adequately be summarized in just short one-hour conversations like this. So I certainly hope you are keeping track of his various work and uh, his voluminous writing. I can't keep track of all of it myself, but always a lot of detail in his writing and in his work. So I hope you will look into that. And uh, finally, is Lark uh, still on the line? Are you still there, Lark? Uh, yes, I must say I enjoy both of the two, both of you's writings, uh, and I read, uh, I read your articles, both of you. I uh, will leave you with this. Uh, we have to be careful about this term and how it's applied. And also, we have to take a note of the communitarian language which is being uh, utilized, not only in the schools, but the universities and uh, throughout, especially the, uh, the, the tech culture online. Uh, William Pitt, in 1783, said that necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. And we also remember that necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, we have to be careful about how we frame our words uh, within language, within the culture. And I, I quite agree with the both of you in conclusion that voluntary uh, is a key word in this entire equation. If it's not voluntary... It's uh, coercive and uh, uh, immoral, unethical. 
violates yeah. uh, the, the non-aggression principle. All right, exactly. Well, Lark, uh, I, it sounds like we're in agreement on a lot of the points there. So uh, we're into the final minute or so. So, uh, Andrew, anything that you'd like to say to wrap up this discussion? Oh, um, yeah, well, uh, I mean, just the note on um, uh, the discussion of language. I mean, I think one very important example of this is just in terms of uh, people being made... Uh, to focus on the language of individuality without any comprehension of what that is. And the way that our culture has promoted this has made people isolated from one another and so that we don't understand and we're actually terrified of the word solidarity, let alone what it means, um, and of uh, any sort of collective organization. Our understanding of the individual has become all about uh, me and for I and what I can do without any uh, consideration for the effects uh, that it has upon others as well as how you are dependent upon others. Uh, so it has, uh, the use of language is very important because not only does it isolate us physically, uh, but also intellectually. And I think that that was an excellent point. All right. Uh, Lark, we're going to have to leave it there. We're up against the end of the program. Thank you for that call, and thank you to Travis in Tennessee. Some very interesting discussion tonight. Lots and lots to talk about on these extremely important issues. And I'll just throw the plug into one of uh, Andrew's latest articles on Bill Clinton's DNC speech, speaking of political language and rhetoric and how that can be used to shape and determine our reality. Another uh, very interesting discussion going on there. That's at andrewgavinmarshall.com. Of course, the links to his websites will be in the show notes for tonight's episode, so I hope you will go to CorbettReport.com to check that out and get the links and uh, and start following Andrew's work if you don't already do so. Lots of fascinating discussion going on. So, Andrew, we're going to have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but thank you so much for your uh, participation tonight. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we will leave it there, but as I say, tomorrow night we're going to be talking to Eric Drakeser of StopImperialism.com. He also has a new Boiling Frogs Post podcast, The Reality Principle. And on Friday night we're going to be talking to Sibel Edmonds about Boiling Frogs Post. So I hope you will continue to stay tuned. Lots of interesting discussion coming up this week on Corporate Report Radio. Until tomorrow night, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again 23 hours from now. Until then, thank you for listening and take care. Available now from BoilingFrogsPost.com. The Boiling Frogs Post DVD. Now, for the first time on DVD, you can own six classic eye-opener reports, as well as a never-before-seen gallery of Paul Jamiel's political cartoons, and an exclusive interview with Sibel Edmonds. Support the Boiling Frogs Post team and watch these reports in high quality. Purchase your copy today at BoilingFrogsPost.com.